This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Life on the Mississippi by Mark Twain. Chapter 30 Sketches by the Way. It was a big river below Memphis, banks brimming full everywhere, and very frequently more than full, the waters pouring out over the land, flooding the woods and fields for miles into the interior, and in places to a depth of fifteen feet. Signs, all about, of men's hard work gone to ruin, and all to be done over again, with straitened means and weakened courage. A melancholy picture, and a continuous one, hundreds of miles of it. Sometimes the beacon lights stood in water three feet deep, in the edge of dense forests which extended for miles without farm, wood-yard, clearing, or break of any kind which meant that the keeper of the light must come in a skiff a great distance to discharge his trust, and often in desperate weather. Yet I was told that the work is faithfully performed in all weathers, and not always by men, sometimes by women, if the man is sick or absent. The government furnishes oil, and pays ten or fifteen dollars a month for the lighting and tending. A government boat distributes oil, and pays wages once a month. The Ship Island region was as woodsy and tenantless as ever. The island has ceased to be an island, has joined itself compactly to the main shore, and wagons travel now where the steamboats used to navigate. No signs left of the wreck of the Pennsylvania. Some farmer will turn up her bones with his plow one day, no doubt, and be surprised. We were getting down now into the migrating negro region. These poor people could never travel when they were slaves, so they make up for the privation now. They stay on a plantation till the desire to travel seizes them, then they pack up, hail a steamboat, and clear out. Not for any particular place. No, nearly any place will answer. They only want to be moving. The amount of money on hand will answer the rest of the conundrum for them. If it will take them fifty miles, very well. Let it be fifty. If not, a shorter flight will do. During a couple of days we frequently answered these hails. Sometimes there was a group of high-water stained tumble-down cabins, populous with colored folk, and no whites visible, with grassless patches of dry ground here and there, a few felled trees with skeleton cattle, mules, and horses eating the leaves and gnawing the bark. No other food for them in the flood wasteland. Sometimes there was a single lonely landing-cabin. Near it the colored family that had hailed us, little and big, old and young, roosting on the scant pile of household goods, these consisting of a rusty gun, some bed-ticks, chests, tinware, stools, a crippled-looking-glass, a venerable arm-chair, and six or eight base-born and spiritless yellow curs, attached to the family by strings. They must have their dogs, can't go without their dogs. Yet the dogs are never willing, they always object. So, one after another, in ridiculous procession, they are dragged aboard, all four feet braced and sliding along the stage, head likely to be pulled off, but the tugger marching determinedly forward, bending to his work, with the rope over his shoulder for better purchase. Sometimes a child is forgotten and left on the bank, but never a dog. The usual river gossip going on in the pilot-house. 
island number sixty-three, an island with a lovely chute, or passage, behind it in the former times. They said Jesse Jameson, in the Skylark, had a visiting pilot with him one trip, a poor old broken-down, superannuated fellow, left him at the wheel at the foot of sixty-three to run off the watch. The ancient mariner went up through the chute and down the river outside, and up the chute and down the river again, and again and again, and handed the boat over to the relieving pilot, at the end of three hours of honest endeavor, at the same old foot of the island where he had originally taken the wheel. A darky on shore, who had observed the boat go by about thirteen times, said, "'Clare to gracious, I wouldn't be surprised if there's a whole line of them skylarks!' Anecdote illustrative of influence of reputation in the changing of opinion. The Eclipse was renowned for her swiftness. One day she passed along. An old darky on shore, absorbed in his own matters, did not notice what steamer it was. Presently someone asked, "'Any boat gone up?' "'Yes, sir.' "'Was she going fast?' Oh, so-so, loafing along. Now, do you know what boat that was? No, sir. Why, uncle, that was the eclipse. No, is that so? Well, I bet it was, cause she just went by here a-sparkling. Piece of history illustrative of the violent style of some of the people down along here. During the early weeks of high water, A's fence-rails washed down on B's ground and B's rails washed up in the eddy and landed on A's ground. A said, Let the thing remain so. I will use your rails, and you use mine. But B objected. Wouldn't have it so. One day A came down on B's ground to get his rails. B said, I'll kill you, and proceeded for him with his revolver. A said, I'm not armed. So B, who wished to do only what was right, threw down his revolver, then pulled a knife and cut A's throat all round, but gave his principal attention to the front, and so failed to sever the jugular. Struggling around, A managed to get his hands on the discarded revolver, and shot B dead with it, and recovered from his own injuries. Further gossip, after which everybody went below to get afternoon coffee, and left me at the wheel alone, something presently reminded me of our last hour in St. Louis part of which I spent on this boat's hurricane-deck aft. I was joined there by a stranger who dropped into conversation with me, a brisk young fellow, who said he was born in a town in the interior of Wisconsin, and had never seen a steamboat until a week before. Also said that on the way down from La Crosse he had inspected and examined his boat so diligently, and with such passionate interest, that he had mastered the whole thing from stem to rudder-blade asked me where I was from. I answered, New England. Oh, a Yank, said he, and went chatting straight along, without waiting for assent or denial. He immediately proposed to take me all over the boat, and tell me the names of her different parts, and teach me their uses. Before I could enter protest or excuse, he was already rattling glibly away at his benevolent work and when I perceived that he was misnaming the things, and inhospitably amusing himself at the expense of an innocent stranger from a far country, I held my peace, and let him have his way. He gave me a world of misinformation, and the further he went, the wider his imagination expanded, and the more he enjoyed his cruel work of deceit. 
Sometimes, after palming off a particularly fantastic and outrageous lie upon me, he was so full of laugh that he had to step aside for a minute, upon one pretext or another, to keep me from suspecting. I stayed faithfully by him until his comedy was finished. Then he remarked that he had undertaken to learn me all about a steamboat, and had done it, but that if he had overlooked anything, just ask him, and he would supply the lack. Anything about this boat that you don't know the name of, or the purpose of, you come to me, and I'll tell you. I said I would, and took my departure, disappeared, and approached him from another quarter, whence he could not see me. There he sat, all alone, doubling himself up, and writhing this way and that, in the throes of unappeasable